Welcome back to the broadcast. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and you are tuned in to Corbett Report Radio here on KHFX 1140 AM in Dallas-Fort Worth and around the world on RepublicBroadcasting.org. Thank you once again for tuning in for tonight's program. And well, I say it often, but it's very true what a program we have lined up for you tonight. Tonight we're honored to be joined on the line by Walter Block of WalterBlock.com. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, I, I did interview Walter Block a couple of years ago for CorbettReport.com. But a brief synopsis, if any is possible, would be to say that Dr. Walter Block is an Austrian school economist and an anarcho-libertarian philosopher. He's also Harold E. Worth Eminent Scholar Chair in Economics and Professor of Economics at Loyola University, New Orleans. And he's a senior fellow with the Ludwig von Mises Institute. So, Dr. Block, it is a pleasure to have you on the program tonight. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks for having me on your show. I'm delighted. Well, we're delighted to have you here, and uh, again, I have interviewed you before in the past, but this is certainly our first time on the radio program, so uh, why don't you introduce yourself for the radio audience and tell us a little bit about your background. Well, you did a great job. I'm not sure I could do as well, but I'll try. Uh, I'm from Brooklyn, New York. I got my. I went to high school at James Madison. I went to college, Brooklyn College. I graduated there in 1964. Got my Ph.D. in economics from Columbia University in 1972. And I've been a professor of economics uh, pretty much ever since. And I've been uh, 10, 11 years now at Loyola University, New Orleans, where I'm the Harold E. Worth Endowed Chair. And um, I'm a libertarian. I uh, have the distinction of having met once and shook hands with Ludwig von Mises. And I have a picture of me playing chess with Hayek. And uh, um, uh, I was a friend of Murray Rothbard, so that, that's pretty uh, good bragging, I would say. Well, I think you've hit the holy trinity of libertarianism right there, so uh, yeah. certainly uh, bragging rights to be had. Well, uh, we only have a short uh, couple of minutes here before the first break, but uh, I, I am interested in that, that, that title, anarcho-libertarian philosopher. I, I'm going to assume that you didn't quite come out of the womb with those views, or maybe you did, but you just took a while to find them. And I'm interested in that process of how you started to come to that uh, realization of your place on the political, well, let's not call it a spectrum, because I think that's too confining, but the political universe. Well, I was originally Jewish from Brooklyn, and every Jew in Brooklyn is a pinko, so I was a pinko. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't think for myself in them our days, and, you know, I just sort of followed along, I mean, in my family, the big question was, um, you're a social democrat or a Marxist, and do you carry a, 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 a communist card or not? And that was pretty radical for my family, but they were all, you know, lefty social democrat types. Uh, I went to Brooklyn College, and Ayn Rand came to lecture, and I came to boo and hiss her because she favored free enterprise, which everyone knew would uh, mean exploitation of the poor. And <clears throat> she, uh, at the end of the, her lecture... I hadn't had enough booing and hissing in me, and uh, somebody from the Ayn Rand study group that had invited her said, we're having a luncheon in her honor, and anyone can come, even if you disagree with her. And I came up there, and I met her and Nathaniel Brandon, and I started arguing with them, and uh, Brandon was very kind, and he said uh, he'll talk to me uh, if I read two books, Atlas Shrugged and Economics and One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt, and I went to his and Ayn Rand's house, for a few times, and then I was converted to not anarchism yet, but at least libertarianism, the non-aggression axiom, private property rights, things like that. 
Very interesting. Well, that's that's how it happens often. Uh, we often go in with the exact contrary views and are turned around by a good argument. And certainly I did come from a very different part of the uh, the political universe than I currently inhabit, so I certainly know about that process a little bit myself. But uh, let's let's start getting into some more details of that after this short break. And as I say, we're talking to Dr. Walter Block of WalterBlock.com, so I suggest everyone goes there to check out some of his other writings and thinkings and some of the blogs that he links to. But on that note, let's take a short break, and we'll be back right after these messages. We're back here on Corbett Report Radio talking to Walter Block, once again at WalterBlock.com. And I suggest people do go and check out some of the many uh, pieces of writing that are available there from various different publications, the American Review of Political Economy, the Review of Austrian Economics, Cumberland Law Review, so many different publications, obviously publishing Walter Block's papers and some of his writings on some, well, a wide range of, uh, of subjects, really. And uh, once again, coming from an anarcho-libertarian perspective, so for people who want to start getting into some of those views and what they really mean, I th- would, again, suggest that you go to the source. But uh, I'd like to start by getting into some of the more contentious uh, issues and papers right off the top, because I know as uh, someone who wrote the libertarian classic Defending the Undefendable, um, you're not one to shy away from these types of issues. So, Dr. Block, why don't we start with an interesting paper that you have up on the front page of WalterBlock.com called Is There a Human Right to Medical Insurance? which you go on to answer in that paper by recourse to the concept of positive and negative rights. Why don't you tell people first about that distinction? What are positive rights? What are negative rights? Negative rights are the right to be left alone, the right not to be murdered, not to be stolen from, not to be raped, not to be uh, molested, not to be uh, interfered with in your person and your property. And as a libertarian, I believe in all those negative rights. you got to keep your mitts off of me without my permission, that is. Uh, we can get into a boxing match and you can hit me, but I've given you permission to hit me above the belt, so that's legitimate. I can't complain about assault and battery if you punch me in the nose in a boxing ring. But other than that, if you punch me in the nose uh, and I haven't given you permission or you steal my TV set, you're a rotten kid. You shouldn't be doing that. You're violating my negative rights. Negative rights, I think, are legitimate, and they form the core of libertarian theory. And I think most people would agree with that. I mean, where are the people that say, yes, murder is okay, rape is okay? Uh, it's just silly. I think the difference between we libertarians and them, our guys, is that we're really serious about this, and they're not. They make all sorts of exceptions for the government. They can tax you and stuff, which brings in the anarchism stuff. Okay, now what about positive rights? Well, there really are no positive rights. Uh, positive rights are demand for wealth, like the right to health or the right to food or the right to clothing or the right to shelter. Uh, if you have a right to food, then I have an obligation to give you food. Uh, if you have a right to clothing, I have an obligation to give you clothing. Whereas if I have a right not to be murdered, then you have an obligation not to murder me, which is all well and good and fine. But to say that you have an obligation to clothe and feed me a complete stranger, well, where did you get that obligation from? Uh, if you have that obligation, that means I'm really stealing the money from you with which to feed myself or clothe myself. So libertarians do not at all agree with so-called positive rights, which we don't think are rights at all, we only go for negative rights. Now, uh, the right to medical insurance or the right to health care 
means that other people have to pay for my health care, and why should they? Unless they contractually obligated themselves to do so, because I paid them to do so, that's fine. But if they're total strangers, why, why do they have an obligation to give me anything? The only obligation they have, I claim as a libertarian, is to keep their myths to themselves and keep them off me. If, if people in the United States have a right to uh, health care, why don't people in Portugal or Patagonia have a right to health care from us? I mean, it, rights shouldn't stop at the, the national borders. I mean, if I have a right not to be murdered, that means I have a right not to be murdered by Texans and not to be murdered by Mexicans and not to be murdered by Martians, if ever we discover any Martians. Namely, negative rights are universal. They apply to everyone. No one should murder anyone. Uh, no one should rape anyone. But uh, if we have rights to health care and food and this and that and the other, why is it limited to just people in the same country? It should be universal. Rights should be universal. So I well, wouldn't that, that be the obvious statist argument for those who argue that there should be these international organizations operating at the United Nations level or whatever organization they come up with to provide these universal positive rights? Yeah, I suppose that's true. Uh, the, you could probably make that argument that uh, if they were really consistent, they would they would do it. Uh, very few people want to have welfare for the whole world. Uh, they're afraid that you know millions of Africans or Chinese or South Americans will come flooding in here to get our welfare abuse. We're a lot richer, so that stops some people. Yeah, but then, then we could institute uh, population control across borders as well, so it would be uh -huh. that perfect managed utopia. <laughs> right. It all works out beautifully. Mm, um, absolutely. Well, what you're saying makes so much sense to me, and I'm sure many of the listeners out there who are already very much on the same page, but it opens up so many different fundamental underlying issues, such as what is a right at all and where does it come from? Well, I would say a right comes from, well, that's a good question. <laughs> I think uh, a right comes from the fact that if you try to deny a right, you're committing a self-contradiction. Because uh, uh, Hans Hoppe is very good, and I learned from him on this, uh, his argument from argument. Suppose some pinko says, well, I deny rights. Well, he's using his property rights in his tongue, his larynx, his pharynx, his lungs, and stuff like that. So he's committing a self-contradiction. So if in order to maintain a position you have to commit a logical self-contradiction, that position is in trouble. So the idea that to deny rights, that is negative rights, is uh, to commit a self-contradiction, which in philosophy is a big no-no. Uh, some people say rights come from God. Other people say rights come from uh, human rights, uh, the, the right to be left alone. Uh, from, from the libertarian point of view, it's not so important to know where they come from. It's rather... Given that we have rights not to be murdered, because most people are, aren't going to deny that, what follows from that? Not so much what causes that, although that's an interesting question, and I go the hoppy and rude on that. But the much more interesting question is, given that we have rights not to be murdered, not to be stolen from, not to be molested, what then? And one of the implications is anarchy, because government violates people's negative rights. They, they tax you. They forbid you to do these things. They compel you to do those things, and there's just simply no justification for that. I mean, uh, sometimes they say, well, we have a democracy, but, you know, Hitler came to power in a democratic uh, regime, uh, and uh, there is such a thing as tyranny of the majority. Just because a, a majority says something doesn't make it right. So uh, governments necessarily violate negative rights. They compel you to pay taxes. They will not allow competition for the services that they 
supposedly provide protection and what have you. So they are in violation of the libertarian non-aggression axiom or non-aggression principle, which is why libertarians, consistent libertarians, uh, become anarchists. Well, you uh, you will forgive me for trotting out some of the arguments that I have no doubt you have heard hundreds and billions of times before, and, but to some extent, perhaps that's the life you're consigned to as an anarcho-libertarian. But uh, but uh, the obvious statist argument would be, well, of course, uh, what you say sounds perfectly reasonable, but since there are going to be people who are not going to respect certain rights, there is going to be disputes, and where does dispute resolution lie in an anarchist, uh, anarchist society? Right, well, that's a very good question, and I forgive you. Uh, I forgive you, my son. Go out and sin no more. <laughs> uh, that's a very good question, uh, in all seriousness. So, you know, there will be not only disputes, but uh, disputes between well-honored people who just disagree over what a contract means. But even worse, they're going to be bad guys. They're going to be murderers and rapists and, uh, you know, thieves, and who's going to stop them? Well, the answer from the anarcho-libertarian perspective is private defense agencies. Uh, look, when you go to Disney World, you're pretty safe there. If you act obstreperously, there'll be a bunch of ducks and mice packing heat who will surround you and say, come with me, sir. And you're pretty safe there because if you weren't, they'd lose a lot of money and they have cameras and this and that and the other. You're very safe there. I live in New Orleans. We've got this park called Audubon Park. New York City has got Central Park. There are murders galore in these public parks. Nobody seems to lose money there. There are supposedly government police who are protecting us, but do they lose money if a rape or a murder occurs? Does the commissioner of police lose money, the mayor? Not really. In so, fact, they probably get an increase in their paycheck. Ah, right. Uh, the, indeed, I, I think you're right. They, if anything, they would get an increase. So uh, I think you're going to be more safe with private enterprise courts, and in, indeed uh, we have a history of admiralty courts and law merchant courts, and uh, we have... Uh, that dean, uh, the Jewish courts, we have uh, canon courts in the Catholic religion. Uh, there are lots of private courts that decide things. Uh, a lot of times when uh, two companies are dealing with each other on very technical matters, what they'll do is they'll appoint uh, an arbitrator, and the arbitrator will decide uh, in the very technical matters, and, and they usually decide these things a lot quicker than government courts, which can take 10 years. Uh, when we and, had and then the, uh, the, well, but an obvious follow-up to that would be to say, well, then the dispute resolution organizations, the insurance or whatever, become a de facto government. Well, they wouldn't be a de facto government unless they went bad, because uh, these people would use force, perhaps, but they would only use force uh, in response to the prior use of force, which would not be the initiation of force, whereas government is very different. Uh, government initiates force against innocent people. These people only initiate force against people that they've uh, found guilty of a crime. Uh, so I think that's a very different kind of a thing. Uh, another point uh, on the anarchist line uh, that I often use to good effect is that if you really uh, think that we need a government because, you know, citizen A and citizen B will be at each other's throats and only the government can stop them, well, then you really need world government because country A and country B will be at each other's throats. For example, Canada and, um, I don't know, China are now in a state of anarchy with regard to each other because there is no one world government over both of them. Ditto for France and uh, Mexico. Uh, ditto for uh, South Korea and um, Germany. They're all in states of anarchy with regard to each other. 
and yet somehow uh, they're not continually uh, at each other's throat. But the argument for government means we should really have world government, and very few people are willing to tolerate mm. and follow the well, idea. Well, I think government. I think you have just hit the nail on the head when it comes to the statist arguments and the entire trajectory of 20th century politics and the. Unfortunately, the trajectory of 21st century politics so far. So I think that's an extremely important point. It's another break, so we'll take another short break here, and we'll be right back with Walter Block. Once again, WalterBlock.com. Right, friends, we're back here on Corbett Report Radio. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Tonight, once again, we're talking to Dr. Walter Block of WalterBlock.com, a professor of economics at Loyola University, New Orleans, and a senior fellow of the Ludwig von Mises Institute. And we're talking about a wide range of subjects because uh, Dr. Block likes to write about a wide range of subjects, uh, including some very contentious issues and some some issues that uh, approach things from a very different angle than we see a lot of people approaching uh, them. So even even if you are are not uh, in favor of some of his arguments, I think you have to appreciate the fact that he really does ch- uh, tackle some some problems in some very unique ways. And one great example of that uh, that again is linked from WalterBlock.com is a paper entitled "Blackmail as a Victimless Crime," uh, co-written with Dr. Robert McGee of uh, the Paul Stillman School of Business. Um, a very interesting take on blackmail, and one that I again I think it's pretty hard to argue with. So, uh, Dr. Block, why don't you take a, take us through that paper and what you argue there? Well, uh, blackmail uh, has to be uh, distinguished from extortion. And uh, very few people do that, and unless you do that, you're going to get into trouble. Uh, what both extortion and blackmail have in common <clears throat> is that in both cases there's a threat accompanied with a demand for money. So, for example, I could threaten to blackmail you by saying, uh, James, unless you give me 100 bucks, I'm going to tell everyone that you take a bath with a rubber ducky. And when people hear that you take a bath with a rubber ducky, they're going to want to have nothing to do with you. They're going to kick you off your radio program, etc. So the threat that I made to you is that I will uh, tell a secret or I'll engage in gossip. Do I have a right to tell secrets like that? Do I have a right to gossip? Suppose I just said, uh, James takes a bath with a rubber ducky, and let's suppose it's true. Did I violate your rights, your negative rights that we were talking about before? Did I initiate aggression against you? No. So I'm threatening something that I have a right to do. Now, it might not be nice, but uh, it shouldn't be illegal because under the libertarian code, the only things that would be illegal would be violations of the non-aggression principle, and by merely threatening to do something that I have a right to do in the first place, I'm not initiating aggression against you. Now, let's suppose I uh, engage in extortion, and I say, unless you give me money, I'm going to kidnap and kill your children. Now, that's extortion, because now the threat, coupled with the demand for money, is to threaten to do something I have no right to do in the first place, namely to kidnap and kill your kids. That's horrendous. Uh, so you have to make a distinction between the two, and I don't say that I favor blackmail. I'm only asking, should it be illegal, and we libertarians reserve prohibition of uh, making things illegal for violation of the non-aggression principle or uh, violation of negative rights, 
and blackmail uh, doesn't violate rights, whereas extortion certainly does. There was this case, um, who's that very famous black actor, uh, sort of an older man who played in many TV shows? Oh, I can't think of his name. Uh, a, a black if woman. You a younger, I'm, I'm sorry? If you can narrow it down, but anyway, yeah. Uh, Maybe. Well, <laughs> Morgan Freeman, are you thinking about? No, no, he's about the same age, but uh, this guy is more on TV. Uh, Dr. Okay. Huxley, he plays. Oh, Bill Cosby. That's it, Bill Cosby. Thanks, I need all the help I can get. I'm getting Alzheimer's here. Bill Cosby uh, was accosted, threatened by a young woman who uh, threatened to go public and say, you're my dad, and, uh, and unless you give me money, I'm going to do this. Well, did she have a right to claim, claim that he was her dad? Well, it's free speech. She can say anything she damn well pleases, as far as I'm concerned, except saying things like, give me your money or I'll shoot you. But to merely claim that somebody is your dad is not, per se, to do violence against them, even if it's untrue. And I think it turned out to be untrue. And yet they put her in jail. So here's a case where a blackmailer was put in jail. And I think that that's inappropriate. Well, in the grand tradition of philosophy, I'm going to uh, to pick up on your analogy and come up with a ridiculous argument. But I think hopefully it will serve for the purposes of argumentation. That uh, what if I uh, what if I fundamentally I believe that I have the right. I'm 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 of the member of the Church of Rubber Duckery, and I believe I have a fundamental human right to take a, a bath with my rubber duck in private. And you have no right to to be able to to say otherwise. That is a dispute at the at the level of what we were talking about earlier. Where do rights come from? And who's to say that you get to arbitrate what? My rights are. Well, I forgive you in advance. <laughs> Disagreeing with me? <laughs> How dare you? Okay, so you're from the Church of Rubber Duckery. I love it. I love it. And uh, you believe you have a right to take a bath with a rubber duck? I'm not denying that. A right in, to do so in secret. Oh, oh, that's a good one. Well, but if you have a right to do so in secret, that means that I have no right to discover and uh, what is it? Uh, let the beans out or something, There's some, uh, some expression like that. Uh, I, I have no right to look at you and tell people that you're taking a bath with a rubber ducky? Unfortunately not, because the god of the rubber duck church says otherwise. Ah, that god, yes. Well, he's a tough, he's a tough cookie. He's a tough duck. Well, I would just say that the, the church of the rubber ducky uh, is in the wrong here, I, I don't. I hate to go against religion, and you know some people might believe in this church, but uh, to merely say that <clears throat> you have no right to engage in free speech with your own property is a violation of my rights. So I would maintain that I have a right to say anything I want, except to make a threat against person or property. Well, I think that sounds perfectly sane, and my, my example, of course, is a bit off the wall, but it does get to that issue, that underlying issue of where do the rights come from. So perhaps we can get more into that after this break. Once again, let's take a short break. We'll be right back after these messages. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Welcome back, friends. We are 
back on Corporate Report Radio, talking once again to Dr. Walter Block of WalterBlock.com. And before the break, we were talking about a rather silly analogy, but I hope that that type of analogy, well, it can be useful for, for talking about things in a way that doesn't necessarily evoke the strong emotions that are associated with so many more contentious topics that are perhaps more to the point. So moving from the rubber duck analogy that we were talking about before the break into something that's perhaps more close to the bone for a lot of people, and thus people are probably already, I would venture to say everyone in the listening audience already has a preconception about the the next topic I want to bring up. A very uh, contentious topic and one that always uh, arouses controversy, so let's get straight into it because uh, that's what the point of these types of conversations really are. Uh, Dr. Block has a, a paper uh, from the Appalachian Journal of Law that he, he co-wrote with Roy Whitehead called Compromising the Uncompromisable, a Private Property Rights Approach to Resolving the Abortion Controversy. Of course, abortion is one of those topics that is always bound to, to uh, rage quite spirited debate amongst uh, the public. So, so Dr. Block, let's get straight into this, because, again, this gets to, down to the conception of what people believe to be their rights. And, uh, and as you say, there, or as you argue in this article, there's a, a private property rights approach that, uh, that resolves the controversy. So let's talk, talk a little bit about that paper and what you argue. Before we get into abortion, which will take a little bit because it's a complicated topic, I just wanted to add a word or two to the previous conversation. Is Please that be okay? Yeah. Uh, there are people who believe in sati, S-U-T-T-E-E in India, where they throw the uh, wife on the funeral pyre. Uh, there are other people um, in uh, Islamic countries that believe that um, if a daughter misbehaves you, uh, you, you have a right to kill her. There are cases like that. There are all sorts of um, people that have weird and uh, wondrous, well, not so wondrous views. Uh, the Nazis had a view, uh, in, in Nazi Germany, uh, it was quite alright to kill certain people. Uh, well, how do we, how do we know that they're wrong? Well, you see, uh, the multiculturalists say, well, you can't say they're wrong because, uh, rights are so ephemeral and you, you really sort of like nailing jelly to the wall. You can't tell. Well, I, I start with the, the non-aggression principle. Uh, I think it's justified by what I said about Hans Hoppe and, and the uh, logical contradiction that you face when you try to deny this. I think all these people are wrong, the Sati people, the, the people that believe you can uh, uh, force women to wear uh, hot jobs, uh, you know, the, all those masks and stuff like that. And if they refuse to wear that kind of clothing, you can kill them. And the Nazis, I'm willing to go out way out on a limb, and, and also the rubber ducky church, I think they're all wrong. I think the only correct uh, view on rights is the libertarian one, which says that innocent people should be unmolested, period. Okay, now let's get to abortion. Um, most people think that there are two and only two views on abortion. One is the pro-life and the other is pro-choice. Um, libertarians, I think, at least me, and a few others, uh, take the view that there's a third choice. It's not just uh, pro-life and pro-choice. But there is this third choice. It's called evictionism. Well, let me go over these three. Uh, the pro-choice uh, people think you have a right not only... You see, uh, abortion is really a complicated act, or it's a two-stage act. One, it's evicting the fetus from the womb, and two, it's killing it, right? When, when you engage in an abortion, you're really doing two things. It's not just one thing. You're doing two things. One, you're removing or evicting the fetus from the womb. And secondly, separately, uh, certainly conceptually distinct from that, you are killing it. Now, the pro-choice people think you have a right to do both. 
the pro-life people think you have a right to do neither. We libertarian compromisers, we moderates, say you have a right to do one but not the other. Namely, you have a right to evict but not to kill. So it's a true compromise position. It's not a, a compromise in the sense that you're adding up two things and dividing by two and compromising in that way. Rather, you're making a philosophical or justified compromise because the womb is owned by the mother. And the fetus, who is a trespasser in her womb, in her body, uh, a, a, a person who is uh, trespassing on her, is uh, really violating her rights. So she has a right to evict, but not to kill. So, for example, suppose you uh, come to my house and uh, and you trespass in my house, and you know I say, well, you know, please get out. And I have a I have a right, James, to tell you to leave my house, but not to kill you. So what I'm saying is that if there's an unwanted baby, hold on a second. I wouldn't wouldn't a libertarian argue that you do have the right to kill me if I'm trespassing? Oh, no, 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 certainly not. You have to remove the person in the gentlest manner possible. Look, if you step on my lawn and I take a bazooka and shoot you, uh, <laughs> it's a little harsh. No, if you step on it's my lawn... It's a little lawn, harsh, but, but your home is your castle, isn't it? I mean, I, I don't want to get sidetracked into this issue, but I no, thought no, that no, the... No, no, the... I, I think it's a very important issue to get sidetracked in. It's really crucial. Uh, so I, I think just as in the, the rubber ducky church, uh, you're really putting your finger correctly on the pulse of the argument, so... Uh, please don't apologize for that. No, I, I think that if an innocent person uh, somehow falls into my house, don't ask how, or let's say from a helicopter and now they're on my lawn, I, I don't think I have a right to kill them even though they're trespassing. I think what I have the, the right to do is to evict them in the gentlest manner possible, uh, consistent with not violating their rights. Uh, wow, but that's up, incredibly interesting because that brings up the whole uh, issue of volition into this. So it, you have to be also take into account whether that person was intending to trespass into the property, which is interesting but uh, and reasonable, but I'm I not sure you would uh, always be in a position to do so as the homeowner in this analogy. Well, I think from the point of view of uh, a criminal, we're now talking about criminals, uh, you have to have mens rea. You have to have a guilty mind or a guilty conscience or some sort of guilt. If, uh, if you're on, Suppose I'm unconscious and somebody drops me on your lawn. Uh, I'm not guilty of any crime. I'm pretty innocent. Now, I have no right to stay there, but what you should do is, you know, call the ambulance or call a hospital or something like that and and get them to cart me away. Uh, but if you just shoot me for being dropped on your uh, lawn, I, I would say you're violating my rights. But how do I know that you were dropped? So, for example, I come back to my home and I find you in my home and you're sitting there in the living room with a, with a, uh, a gun because you dropped with, from the helicopter with a gun in your hand. I don't really have the time to ascertain whether or not you dropped from a helicopter or you're a thief, no, so no, I'm going to kill you. No, I think you would be right in doing that if, I, if it was a strange person sitting in your living room uh, with a gun pointed at you. Uh, you uh, shoot me first and ask questions later. But now you're raising a very different question, a question of knowledge. Let's adopt a God's eye point of view, namely that we have full knowledge of everything, because that's much easier. And uh, if you know that I'm unconscious and I'm somehow sitting in your living room, uh, let's say unconscious with no gun, and you know that I was just dropped there by uh, some mad scientist or what have you, uh, and I'm totally innocent, uh, well, if you shoot me then, I think you're, you're guilty of murder. Uh, and you shouldn't shoot me. What you should do is um, 
try to wake me up or call a doctor or a hospital and get them to take me out on a stretcher. Now, if I uh, step on your lawn and you say, hey, you, you probably didn't realize it, but this is private property, please leave, and I start getting snarky and I start uh, pushing you around, well, then I'm doing a lot more than trespassing, and now you have a right to use very, very strong force, to, up to lethal force, to repel me because now I'm a danger to you. Now, let's get back to abortion, and let's suppose that there's a rape that occurred. And all of a sudden, a young lady has got a trespasser in her body. Well, does she have a right to evict it? I would say so. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's a trespasser. Uh, she didn't want the baby there. She got raped. Now, the baby is innocent. The father is a rapist, guilty, but he's out of the picture. Now it's just the mother and the baby. Does she have to keep the, the baby there for nine months? Even if we stipulate, as I do, that uh, life begins with the uh, fertilized egg, uh, because if you have an egg and a sperm separate, they will not develop into a person. But if you have a fertilized egg in the right uh, environment, it will develop into a person. So I uh, uh, take the view that uh, the fertilized egg is a human being. But here is a woman who's been raped, and she's got this fertilized egg in her. Does she have the pro-life rights? to evict and kill? No, the baby is innocent. Uh, it should be evicted. Now, it's true that at the modern day of uh, uh, modern technology, uh, a fertilized egg or a baby in the first trimester or even in the second trimester is not viable. So if you evict, you're going to kill. So this mainly occurs for the third trimester where babies are viable, and yet the pro-life people... Uh, uh, inappropriately or improperly, so you have a right to kill that baby too. There is even this heinous thing called partial birth abortion where um, they suck the baby's brains out of its head while the baby is still in the womb and then baby comes out dead even though it would have been perfectly viable. Ron Paul talks about a case where a baby was born and they just sort of threw it into a bucket and let it die crying. I mean, that's pretty despicable. So, the evictionist libertarian says that the pro-choice view is wrong. What about the pro-life view? Well, the pro-life view uh, says, in effect, that the rape victim has to keep the baby there because the baby uh, is innocent. And now it's true they make an exception for rape and incest and stuff like that, but why make exceptions? We're trying to get at the truth of the matter, and the truth of the matter is that baby is totally innocent, as innocent as any other baby, and uh, if the mother is to be compelled to uh, keep the baby for nine months, well, then when I come into your living room, you've got to keep me there for nine months, which is ridiculous and crazy. So I, I happen to, uh, my sentiment is with the pro-life side because I think that there are a lot of innocent human beings that are being murdered, killed, when they shouldn't be, uh, babies in the third trimester uh, who would be viable outside the womb, uh, they, they are murdered. Uh, and I note also that the pro-choice people are now in the ascendancy in the sense that um, that's the law of the land. So I appeal especially to pro-life people, and I say, look, we are losing the battle, we pro-lifers. I'm not really a pro-lifer philosophically, but I root for pro-life because libertarians are pro-life. We're against murder. Uh, we're losing the battle. If we adopt evictionism, in one fell swoop, we save one-third of babies, or at least uh, all the babies that are in the last trimester. But as medical technology improves, in maybe 10 years, instead of one-third of the babies, we'll be saving 
uh, four-ninths of babies, namely, let's say, the last four months, um, uh, the babies will be viable. And eventually, in, I don't know, 100 years, um, all babies will be viable outside the womb at any stage, and then we will have succeeded. So it's sort of a gradualist process empirically, but philosophically I think it's clear that this is the only proper view about abortion, uh, the, uh, namely the pro-life and the pro-choice views are wrong, and only pro, uh, pro-evictionist views are correct. Well, that that is, I mean, my, my hat's off to you because I have never actually thought about it as a two-step process, um, and and it is important. I think you're you're right. It is there are two separate uh, actions taking place there, and if we can separate them philosophically, that kind of compromise, uh, hopefully, with uh, medical technology, would be possible at some point. Fundamentally, I agree with you completely. I do believe that life begins at conception, but for the obvious argument for those who who don't would be, well, it's not a human life, so it doesn't deserve human rights, and uh, that's another problem that we come in with uh, with human rights is the, the ability or the self-appointed ability, so-called by certain groups of people, to deny other people uh, their humanity even, let alone their, uh, their access to human rights. Well, part of the reason I assume that the baby, uh, 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 a human, is a fertilized egg, is because I think it's true. Another part is because I don't want to make a straw man argument for myself because I am going to take the view that, look, 100 years ago before any medical technology, when the only way to... Um, evict was to kill. Now I'm taking a pro-choice side, and I don't want to make it easy for myself. I don't want to create a straw man argument. So I I think for practical uh, reasons, and also because I think it's correct, human life starts at conception, period. Uh, I think that's absolutely true, and and it also gets me away from uh, making it easy for myself by having a straw man argument. Exactly right. Okay. Well, I, again, a, a fascinating topic that we could spend an entire hour on. But I want to to bring up something else that you mentioned there. You, you of course, mentioned Ron Paul, and you have written um, at length about his uh, his ideas and, and defended him quite a lot in the past. So I, I assume it's safe to say I'm not putting words in your mouth that you are a supporter of the Ron Paul Republican nomination for presidency. Oh, am I ever? <laughs> yes. You're not putting words in my mouth. I I am Interesting. a big fan. Uh, there might be people well then as as we're as the as the time is unfortunately running down, I want to to get straight to the heart of the issue. How can a self-professed anarchist possibly justify the idea of voting for a politician who will allow the people to have a little bit more freedom? Well, he's going to allow us a lot more freedom, not just a little bit more freedom. but look if if I want to promote libertarian anarchism, the first thing I've got to do is get libertarians. Then I'll convert them to anarchism, the way I was converted. Well, Ron Paul is converting people hand over fist. I, at one time, I thought second to Ayn Rand, but I think now even more so than Ayn Rand, uh, in terms of sheer numbers of people that are now hearing about libertarianism from a, uh, a person who is articulate and, and knowledgeable and personable, um, even though his critics say he doesn't wear good suits or something like that, which I think is utter nonsense. Uh, he is, I mean, he goes to college campuses or he goes to places and he fills football stadiums full of people that are cheering him. I mean, the man, I mean, you know, they, they say if he walked on water, uh, they would say, well, he can't swim or something like that. I mean, this guy is walking on water. He is creating libertarians at a rate that I think even exceeds Ayn Rand, who is the second most greatest creator of, of libertarians in, in the known universe. 
I mean, people like Hayek and Mises and Rothbard, they were uh, magnificent, but they weren't well-known to the general public. Maybe Hayek a little bit, but nothing like Ron Paul. So uh, if you're serious about anarchism, uh, libertarian anarchism, you have to want to create libertarians. Ron Paul is creating libertarians uh, at an amazing clip. So therefore, as a pragmatic thing, you have to support him. Now, am I being hypocritical? Am I violating my principles? Am I saying, well, um, you know, you shouldn't be voting? Well, I don't think uh, that libertarians, anarchists, are precluded from voting. Um, uh, Spooner, uh, Lysana Spooner, is a, a philosophical anarchist, and he defended uh, voting. Uh, look, uh, suppose we were on a slave plantation, and, and they offered us a choice between Overseer Goody and Overseer Batty. An Overseer Goody would only whip us uh, once a, a week, and Overseer Batty would whip us three times a, a day. And we all voted for Overseer Goody. Does that mean we support slavery? Well, of course not. It just means we don't want to be whipped three times a day. We'd rather be whipped once a week. Well, Obama and Mitt and Gingrich and Santorum are going to whip us three times a day. Ron Paul is going to whip us once a week. Uh, much less than that, once a year. And uh, I'd rather be whipped once a year than three times a day. Well, I understand the argument, but it sounds like a lesser of two evils argument to me. But at any rate, we are again up against a break, so we'll take a short break and we'll wrap things up after this uh, short break. And we are here on Corbett Report Radio, and we are talking to Walter Block of Dalter, Dr. Sorry, we're talking to Dr. Walter Block of WalterBlock.com, and uh, I have been hoarding him to myself all night because I am an absolute sucker for a good philosophical conversation. So I, I apologize for monopolizing Walter's time, but we do have one caller waiting patiently on the line to get in and get his word in on the uh, conversation. So, Arthur in Georgia, thank you for hanging on the line. What's on your mind tonight? Oh, boy, I would have loved to have got in on this conversation earlier because this is like exactly the kind of conversations I love getting into. Um, Me too. I think you and I, Doctor, are on the same page here because I look at when I think of abortion, I, I think, okay, first of all, if you didn't want a baby, you should have kept your pants on. But then again, when I look at you know a woman's raped or a child is molested and they end up pregnant, this was something they did not want. And here is where I believe that if they wanted to, they should be allowed to abort that fetus, but you need to do it right early on as soon as you find out about it and not wait until halfway through the pregnancy or into your third trimester because you should know right off the bat if you want to do this, especially when we talk about children who are molested and how many thousands of little girls, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, who get pregnant because, uh, well, daddy molested them or their, had their brother raped them or who knows, whatever. And to force them to carry this child and give birth, this is, I mean, a true example of victimizing the victim. And I think this is where we have to really look at this and give serious, serious thought whether you are on the pro-life or the pro-choice. I'm the pro-stop the stupid. Well, I well you. absolutely. Do you have a question for uh, Walter here? Well, I kind of want him to address that and see if we're like on the same page there. 
we're, no, it's not we're only half on the same page. I certainly agree with your example, but I think you're failing to reckon with the power of the idea that all fetuses are equally innocent. And, and if you can, uh, so they have to be treated equally. So let's say you have a woman who uh, decides to get pregnant. She's not raped. She's not 13. She's 25, and she engages in sexual intercourse, whether she's married or not, and now the baby is, I don't know, three months old. Uh, that is, the fetus is three months old. She's ending her first trimester, and she changes her mind. Well, if you're going to treat all babies equally, and you've just agreed to allow the eviction and therefore killing of some babies, namely the ones who are the product of rape, well, then logic compels you to agree with me <laughs> uh, that this woman, too, has a right to evict. Not to kill, but to evict. However, at certain points in the pregnancy, the only, at, given our present me medical technology, the only way to evict is to kill, and I go much further than you uh, in the pro-choice direction. Namely, I say all women at any stage in the uh, uh, pregnancy have a right to evict, not to kill. That's the evictionist position. Your position is uh, really a pro-life with exceptions uh, position, and I don't accept that. I'm not a pro-lifer, even though my sympathy is with them, uh, because, uh, as I say, you're not giving sufficient weight to the equal innocence of all fetuses. So we, we disagree. Well, uh, absolutely. And unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there because we are fresh out of time. But, Arthur, thank you so much for that. And I hope you can call in again and we can hopefully hash this out further in a, in a different uh, uh, episode of to this broadcast. And, uh, and Dr. Walter Block, I'm afraid that I had you on actually originally to talk about uh, money and monetary reform, but we didn't even get to broach that because of my uh, penchant for philosophical conversation. So I hope we can certainly have you on in the future to talk more about economics specifically. But once again, for everyone who's interested in Walter Block and his work, WalterBlock.com. And we're going to have to leave it right there. But thank you again for listening, and I'm looking forward to talking to you all again tomorrow night. Thank you. Thanks for having me on your show.